This episode of The Incubator is proudly sponsored by Kiesi. Okay. My turn? Yeah. All yours. Okay. Um, I thought this this is a totally different kind of paper on the other end of the BPD spectrum, but I thought this was a very interesting article, something we discuss in our unit all, well, almost every unit I've worked in, so all the time. (laughs) Transpyloric feeding is associated with improved oxygenation compared with gastric feeding among non-intubated, extremely low birth weight infants. I mean, they really give you the punchline here in this title, so I appreciated that. Um, uh, Lead author, uh, Bharath Srivatsa, um, this is in the Journal of Pediatrics, coming to us from Atlanta, Georgia. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, some big names in, um, uh, PDA, BPD. So that's, uh, yeah. good also. So the question was really, does placement of transpyloric feeds change the oxygenation and very low birth weight infants? Um, and I thought the, I thought they're, I'll get, let me just get into the, the definitions of, of what they, what they used, because I think, um, what they used was, uh, really valuable. They were using, and we reviewed, uh, the paper that, um, presented the pulse oximetry tool, um, in 2021, but as a measure of oxygen lability. So basically, um, across the design, um, the background information you need to know is that they were taking simultaneous measurements of the FiO2 and the SpO2, and they create this ratio, the SpO2 over the FiO2. Um, so that's the first number you need to know. They also have a titration index, so, which looks at... And, and you would love yeah. that number, I guess, to be very high, right? Because you would want your... Your sat correct to, a higher saturation with lower, lower FiO2, FiO2. Okay. requirement right. Just finished fracturing um, with my daughter in six uh, in six grades. That's right, <laughs> very helpful. Perfect, very very timely. Um, the titration index looks at manual titrations per hour um, by like the bedside staff, and um, they're also interested in this intermittent hypoxic episodes, which I think is very valuable because it's really looking at saturations like less than 80% for greater than one minute. So is your baby, does your baby desat a little bit or does your baby desat a lot? Um, and uh, they also calculate this hypoxia severity score, which is really how low is the desaturation from the lower baseline limit. Um, so that's mm-hmm. an, another way to look at how severe um, are, are these episodes of, of hypoxia. And so basically what they were trying to do is looking at measurements before and after transpyloric tube placement. Um, the unit standard for feeding was bolus feeds, but the time, like how, like over how long was the bolus feed wasn't really specified, but feeding every three hours. And just some other parameters for information in this unit, target saturations are 90 to 95 um, with alarms set at 88 and 95. Um, Let's get back to the beginning. So their study design, which is was actually a retrospective chart review um, to find infants who had um, transpyloric tubes placed. The inclusion criteria were infants that weighed less than 1,000 grams at birth were born between January 1st, 2017 and December 31st, 2020, and admitted to this um, single uh, level three ICU. In addition, um, 
part of the inclusion criteria was that infants had had an indwelling transpyloric feeding tube placed and who had both, you know, these um, oxygenation parameters. So uh, simultaneous serial uh, oxygen saturations and FiO2 data for this eight-day observation period around the time of the transpyloric tube placement. Exclusion criteria, infants who didn't get the tube placed uh, or who lacked this oxygenation um, data. Um, In addition, and I thought this was uh, useful, they looked for other potential confounding clinical conditions that might affect oxygenation. And they would um, exclude babies, for example, who had... um, who went from non-invasive to invasive respiratory support, who had a transfusion of packed red blood cells, initiation of steroid therapy, um, uh, initiation of caffeine therapy, or a greater than 20% change in dose of either steroids or caffeine, um, treatment of a PDA or culture positive sepsis. So any of those things that might drastically change your oxygenation status um, also was a criteria for exclusion. Um, the other thing that, um, definition to note, because they do split the group by, um, this parameter is, um, uh, what is the positive pressure respiratory support? So that included, um, uh, mechanical ventilation, CPAP, nasal IMV, or nasal cannula greater than two liters. So basically what they did is they looked at this period of time before and after transpyloric tube placement. Again, it wasn't randomized. It was a retrospective study. Um, So, you know, the indication was not always clear for why they put in the transpyloric feeds. Um, But in general, it was felt that it was to help um, with this um, oxygenation status in these babies. So the baseline characteristics were that they had 14 intubated and 42 non-intubated infants. So admittedly a very small study. The mean birth weight of the non-intubated patients was 737 grams. um, And the non-intubated patients um, had a greater weight than that of the intubated patients, an average of 594 grams. Um, The mean um, transpyloric feeding duration was significantly longer among the intubated versus non-intubated patients. Um, So the intubated patients had transpyloric feeds for longer, 75 versus 26 days. And um, I thought this was interesting that they pulled from the chart data. Clinicians reported clinical improvement in 64% of the non-intubated patients compared with 14% of the intubated patients. Um, in terms of adverse events, they had one patient with hemorrhagic gastritis. Um, obviously, there's always concern that trans- could transpyloric feeds be associated with um, additional adverse events. So for the primary outcome, there was no significant improvement in any respiratory measures among the intubated patients. Again, this was a, a small group of 14 patients um, after transpyloric tube placement which was consistent with, with this low rate of perceived clinical benefit by the clinicians that was reported. Of note, um, that ratio, the oxygen saturation over FiO2 requirement ratio showed a trend toward an improvement based on the change in slope post-transpyloric tube placement. 
But what was really interesting was the non-intubated infants showed significant improvement in several respiratory measures following the change from gastric to transpyloric feeding. The median SpO2 over FiO2 ratios remained stable prior to the placement and demonstrated a steady increase um, during transpyloric feeding, indicative of improved oxygenation. The titration index and average number of hypoxemia episodes showed steadily rising levels prior to transpyloric feeds, consistent with like a worsening respiratory status, but fell after transpyloric tube placement, indicative of significant improvement. The hypoxemia severity score, likewise for uh, this group of infants, showed a steady rise before transpyloric tube placement, but fell after transpyloric. Uh, pyloric tube placement and remains stable thereafter. So um, I thought this was interesting. I thought it was um, particularly useful that they distinguished the intubated babies from the non-intubated babies. Um, I think that may give an indication of why it's even potentially useful. Um, I think a lot of people try this with intubated babies, right? Just do what can what can we do to get this baby extubated, right? So um, they tried it, but they they did not see a major difference in the small group of intubated babies. Um, but they saw a significant difference in the in the um, non-invasive group. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure you like have some. I'm sure I'm sure you have something to say about this. I like transpyloric. No, I was going to say. <laughs> No, it was a great paper, and yeah. this, uh, and the, I suggest people take a look at the graphs because while, mm-hmm. um, yeah, so, some of the things like, for example, the hypoxemia severity score over time, like it's true that it was rising before transpyloric feeds mm-hmm. and then it fell, but it sort of, sort of plateaued more than Plateau. fell, uh, <laughs> and that's not you. I mean, you were reading off the paper, so I'm just saying. But but there are other metrics. So, for example, the ratio that we were mentioning, the SATs over right. FiO2, like that's quite impressive. The mm-hmm. jump that you see after the initiation of transpyloric feeds. I think it's a great paper because this is something that we're, we've been doing in our unit and that theoretically makes a lot of sense, especially if you have a bit of reflux that could be impacting your respiratory system. Um, it's nice to have evidence that supports the use of transpyloric feeds. So that paper is saved so that when I want to start transpyloric <laughs> feeds and somebody's going to you say, well, it. I was like, oh, whoop, there it is. Well, you know, points. I think sometimes it's difficult to quantify for any, for a lot of the things we do, right? Quantify mm-hmm. what is improvement. Um, and so, I, I mean, I thought that was useful. If you have higher saturations, with lower FiO2 requirements or higher saturations on the same FiO2 requirement, um, then then that's an improvement. To to be devil's advocate here, just because mm-hmm. I can I can imagine people thinking mm-hmm. like it's funny how you said like it's almost like a non going conversation we have every day in the unit, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was surprised considering Reese Clark is on that paper and that they have mm-hmm. access to these large databases that it was only like fourteen intubated patients and forty two non intubated patients. Which is not very much. Well, I think it's because I think it's because they really needed all of that data, right? Basically, continuous data of FiO twos and oxygen saturations. So, um, obviously, this would be a great study to do on a on a big database. You just need. All yeah, the I'm data. not sure. I'm not sure how feasible it is, but it is the one thing where you can say, well, it was a, like I could see people mm-hmm. making the case for mm-hmm. the fact that it was a small study and. Sure. There's nothing wrong with small studies, but they have inherent limitations. So, and I think if I remember correctly, the authors do acknowledge that somewhere. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, 
yeah. Otherwise, uh, yeah, that's it. First, first relatively small, small sample size. Right. First, first line of delimitations. Mm -hmm. So, but it's a still a great study. Saved on my on my folder. This podcast is intended to be purely for entertainment and informational purposes and should not be construed as medical advice. If you have any medical concerns, please see your primary care professional. Thank you.